0: I've got to be careful here because my in-laws are here this morning, but the things us men will do for, 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 for women. Um, one of my pet peeves, one of many pet peeves is musicals. Anybody, anybody here like musicals? Anyone who wants to admit it, there's a Musicals Anonymous group that meets on a Tuesday night down at the back. Um, in the first service, like half the room liked musicals, so they've been excommunicated uh, from the church. I hate musicals. Uh, I hate the old music, you know, like The Sound of Music and all those sorts of ones, and I hate the modern ones. You know, like La La Land that everybody raves about. I watched four and a half minutes of that and had to turn it off. Uh, what's the other ones? Uh, the Greatest Showman, Mama Mia, I mean, ABBA. Oh, come on. Some of you are loving the Mamma Mia. Take your Mamma Mia somewhere else. Uh. And uh, even, even the, the kids ones frozen and frozen too. I just, you know my, you know what my thing about musicals is? The singing. <laughs> that, 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 that something that could be said in about four seconds takes 33 verses. And normally we dance as well. My theory is this, that if they were to take out the the singing out of musicals, the whole thing would last about eight and a half minutes, and so they have to just keep dragging it out. And so you can imagine how thrilled I was in my 20s when I was living in Cleveland, Ohio, in America, and the girl I was dating at that stage, Jess, phoned me one day at work, and she said, Craig, guess what? I've got two tickets for us to go and see the musical Godspell tomorrow night. Now, my heart sank in that moment, but my brain went into overdrive. I'm starting to think of... What can I like? How creatively can I get out of this? Like, how can I get out of this? And I'm trying to think. I, I, have we not got that thing tomorrow night? You know that thing? Like, no. she's like, what thing? And I, I, I couldn't think of anything. And I'm like, why do you want to go and see this? And she said, you know, uh, my friend Tim, who who I've known since childhood, is actually in it, and and he gave me tickets. And and I'm like, Flip, this is just getting worse by the minute. Like, some guy that my then, girlfriend who was obviously nowhere near as attractive or a nice personality as my wife. Um, <laughs> let that just be said for the sec- first and second row. Uh, like this, she's got some friend in this musical who uh, who is probably like like Chad Pitt. You know what I mean? Like uh, he's probably he's probably you know like ripped and built and he's going to be the star of the show and and, you know I mean at this stage I'm praying that he's Judas okay because that might make it tolerable um but like as well as having to sit through a musical I'm going to have to watch this guy that she's probably been in love with since she was two uh on the stage prancing about and uh, and so we went to it the following night and if I I mean, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was worse, okay? Because just to, just to make matters worse, in the providence of God, he seated around us uh, about 14 seven to eight-year-olds who it seemed had been force-fed smarties washed down with Red Bull, okay? And it's not that I don't like screaming children, I don't like screaming children. That's why we've got a shed out in the back garden for Elijah, okay? That's where he lives. Um, but, but so we've got Bin Laden's kids around us. We, we've got, uh, you know, and, and so the whole thing starts. And uh, for those of you who aren't aware, God's spell is loosely based on the gospel of Matthew. And by the term loosely, I mean very loosely. And, uh, and I'd hope, like I said, Chad Pitt, Tim, would be playing Judas. But who's he playing? Jesus. Jesus. Now, very quickly it became apparent that I had nothing to worry about. His clothes were too tight. And let's just say, I don't know, I'm trying to think how to phrase this without offending anybody. He might have been better as one of the women. In, you know, in, 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 like he, he could have played Mary or somebody like that. Um, so I figured very quickly I had nothing to worry about from on that side of things. I, I was safe there. I mean, the most communication that him and my then girlfriend hes not as beautiful as my girl, wife now, uh, the most communication they were probably going to have was swapping fashion tips or something like that. So so I was fine with that. So, but, so they go through the, you know, they sing everything and they go through the gospel singing it all, you know. and Jesus calls the disciples and Matthew, or the disciples sing and they go through the teaching and... They go through it all, and then they get to the trial, and Jesus uh, is before Pilate, and, and they're singing obviously, and and, uh, and 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 Bin Laden's kids around me are slurping their slurpees and chewing their uh, Smarties, and it's just as close. If there is a purgatory, that was it, and uh, and uh, and this is all going on, and I'm just like I'm losing the will to live. Actually, I, I mean this was before mobile phones, so I couldn't even like sit on my phone, and. Uh, And this is all going on. And then they take Jesus and they they pronounce him guilty. And they nail him to the cross. And he's nailed to the cross and the place goes silent. And the theater went dark. Even the slurpees around us were no longer slurping. Everything was quiet. Complete silence in the room. You could have heard a pin drop. Apart from one little boy, about two rows behind me, sobbing his eyes out. He said, Daddy, he's dead. Daddy, Jesus is dead. Daddy, Jesus is dead. His hero was dead. And then the lights start to come back on. And there's women walking to the tomb, singing, because that's what you do when you're going to embalm a dead body. And then there's the angels singing. And then there's the news. He is not here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is risen. And Jesus appears behind the women. And this little boy... He just went wild. He's on his seat. He's cheering. He's whooping. He's like, he's alive! He's alive! And all the grown-ups are just sitting like, we know. We know he's alive. And he's like, Jesus is alive! He's alive! His hero had come back to life. You see, the problem with us is we've become so familiar with this story. We've lost the wonder of it. We've lost the awe of it. That the greatest event in human history just becomes another day at church sometimes. I always say it's a bit like when you, you, know, you get a new car for the first few weeks. Every time you get into it, you're like, oh, I love this car. And you're, I love this car. And then after a while, it's just your car. You forget how precious it was to you at one stage. And I think the Easter account, the resurrection can be like that. We just become familiar with it. We lose the awe and the wonder of the resurrection. So what does that have to do with us in 2022? Jesus has risen. Big deal. Jesus is alive, but you're still struggling with your finances. Jesus is alive, but your marriage has fallen apart. Jesus is alive, but you feel so lonely and you want to meet somebody and it's just not happening. Jesus is alive and you're praying for healing and it's not happening. Jesus is alive and your heart is broken and you're grieving the loss of a loved one. Jesus is alive, so what? What does it mean? What does it mean for you and me today? I want to tell you it means everything. I want to tell you that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a historical event. It's a present reality and it's a future hope. And that's what we're going to see as we go through John 20 this morning. We're just going to read through the verses We're just going to tell the story as John told it, and we're just going to see what happened. Let's look at verse one. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So it's the first day of the week. We would normally say Monday's the first day, but because their Sabbath was Saturday, Sunday was the first day of the week. Jesus had been crucified on Friday. Saturday, everything was silent. It was the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to do anything. It was that in-between day of silence, and some of us know what that's like. That in-between day where nothing seems to be happening. There was all the noise on Friday. There was all the shouts. There was the cries from the cross. There were the taunts from people. There was, there was the, 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 the earthquake. And we all know about Resurrection Sunday, but Saturday was silent, and some of us are not silent Saturday right now where God just doesn't seem to be doing much, where we've left some things behind, where we've lost some things, where we've let go of some things, and we believe there's something ahead, but right now God seems way too quiet. And there's something about that little phrase, I've read this so many times, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. While it was still dark. It must have been around 4 a.m. It was as soon as Mary could get there. She probably hadn't slept a wink the night before. While it was still dark. The darkness on Friday was still carrying on to Sunday. The darkness had covered the cross. The darkness had covered the earth when Christ died. That darkness is still covering the earth. And it's covering Mary. And it's not just covering her on the outside, but it's covering her on the inside. And Mary was someone who knew a lot about darkness. Mary was someone who had lived a dark life. She knew a lot about darkness. Look at what we read about Mary in Luke chapter 8. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and disease. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Seven demons. That's what Mary was like when she first encountered Jesus. I mean, to have one demon is not great. Like, let's be honest. I've done a few deliverances in my time and one demon isn't fantastic. Seven is you've done something wrong. Scholars and theologians try to debate the say that she might have been a prostitute, that she'd lived a promiscuous life, that she was an adulteress. We don't actually have any idea. But all we do know about Mary Magdalene is this, that she was a woman tormented. She was a woman who was a hopeless situation. She was a woman who was no longer in control of her emotions and her body. She was completely overtaken by darkness and evil. We don't know how she'd let those demons into her life what door she had opened. But at some point in her life, she had engaged in habitual behavior that had allowed demons to come in and now they were in charge of her and people avoided her. She was an outcast. She was a reject. She was someone that you avoided. You crossed the street when you saw Mary. And then one day, Jesus is passing her little village, a little fishing village, a tiny little place called Magdala. See, Magdalene's not her surname. It's just where she's from because there's like five Marys in the Gospels. And so it was just a way of distinguishing her. Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala. And Jesus is passing through and he sees this woman who everybody else is avoiding. And Jesus walks towards her. And as Jesus walks towards her, the demons start walking backwards. And Jesus keeps walking he isn't put off by her dysfunction he isn't put off by the demons he isn't put off by the things that have put everybody else off he moves towards that which everybody else retreats from and jesus moves towards her and as jesus moves towards mary the demons start to quake and the demons start to shake and one by one one demon two demons three demons Four demons, five demons, six demons, seven demons come out of her, and she is free. For the first time in as long as she can remember, she feels free. The weight is lifted off her. She can think straight, she can see straight. She's liberated. The chains are gone. And from that moment forward, her life is never, ever the same again. Everything about her life from that point forward became about following Jesus. Everyone else might leave him, but Mary was still there. When every disciple fled the cross, when the men all cleared off, and everybody had run away. Look at what we read in John 19. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary. told you there was a lot of Marys. The wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Jesus had once said this, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. And Mary Magdalene knew what it was to be forgiven much and she loved much. And she owed Jesus Everything. So everyone else could leave Jesus, and Peter could deny him, and Judas could betray him, and everyone else could abandon him, but not Mary. She was gonna be there right to the end. As his back was beaten and whipped, Mary watched. As a soldier spat on him and slapped his face and gambled for his clothes, Mary was there. As the crown of thorns pierced his skull, Mary was there. As he hung naked on a cross, Mary was there. As the spear was thrust into his side, Mary was there. As the crowd taunted him and mocked him, Mary was there. Mary watched Jesus until he breathed his very last breath. And her heart was shattered. This couldn't be happening, not to her Jesus and she's broken again in that moment and a darkness comes over her in that moment. It's a different brokenness and a different darkness than she had known before but still a brokenness and a darkness. And after he dies, everyone leaves the scene except two people. Jesus' mom and Mary Magdalene. Look what we read reading, Mark 15. So Joseph, as Joseph of Arimathea, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in the tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was led. She follows Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb. When everybody else is gone, she keeps following. Even when he's dead, she keeps following. She wants to see where the body is led. And then when she sees where they put the body, the Sabbath's approaching, and so she has to go home. That was Friday, the darkest day. Then all day Saturday, the darkness didn't lift. She keeps saying it over and over again. How could this happen? How could this happen? This was not the way it was meant to happen. She couldn't sleep. She's tossing and turning. And she just keeps waiting for the Sabbath to be over so she can go back to the tomb. Because she just wants to be near Jesus. Even if he's dead, she just wants to be near him. Some of you know what that's like. That's why you visit graves not just to lay flowers, but you, you stand there and you remember the person. You remember what they meant. You honor them. You, you, just, you feel closer to them. And, and, and literally, it's almost the second the Sabbath is over, she climbs up out of her bed and she leaves the house while it's still dark. And she starts walking towards the garden where the tomb is. And when she gets there, She doesn't know what she's going to do when she gets there. Because she saw the tomb sealed with a stone. But she gets there and something's not right. The stone has been removed from the entrance. What has happened? She has no idea. Look at verse two with me. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She's in a panic. She doesn't know what to do. So she just takes off running. And we don't know if she ran to Simon Peter and John's house or if she met them on the way, but she meets him and out of breath, she says, I don't know what they've done. He's not in the tomb anymore. What have they done? Look at verses three and four. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I think this is funny. I always find this funny. This appeals to my sense of humor. This is John's gospel. Who's the other disciple? John. John is writing this and he just has to put in that Peter and him were running and I got there first. I mean, John is one of those, I hate to say it because he's a disciple and he turned out wonderful later on when he wrote Revelation and stuff. But I'm not sure I would have liked John very much. John's gospel is the only gospel that describes John as the disciple that Jesus loved. No other gospel does that apart from John's gospel. I mean, John just—he's stuff. He's still—he's not fully sanctified yet. Um, You know, look, he says the other disciple, i.e. me, I'd run, Peter. I mean, not that it's a competition, but I just want everyone to know that that I'm faster. (laughs) My brother-in-law's here today, actually. I've just come to me there that uh, we were reminiscing last week about when we lived in Dublin, and Tim came down, and I had been jogging at that stage, and. Tim said, you want to go for a jog? And I said, yes. And we went to Phoenix Park, which was just beside where we lived. And I mean, I, I enjoyed jogging at that stage, but I wasn't a fast jogger. And neither was Tim. But he took off quite quickly, and so I took off quite quickly. And he kept going faster, and I kept going faster, because I was like, I'm not going to let my brother-in-law win. Like, There's no way. And then he kept going faster, and I kept going faster. And That day we ran 8K, and can I say, for the next three days, I couldn't move. And I said to him, do you always run like that? he said, no, I was trying to keep up with you. (laughs) And I've never forgiven him since. Um, There's a little bit of that competitive spirit going on here. So, where are we? I've totally lost my place now. Yeah, he just wants everyone to know he's faster. Verses five to seven. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, can't help himself, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So John gets there, and John's a cautious sort of guy. He's a fast runner, but he's cautious. And in those days, the, tomb was, the door of the tomb was probably more horizontal, so you had to get quite low. So he looks in, he sees the strips of linen. Then Peter gets there after him, and Peter is a bit like me. Peter's impulsive. Peter's one of those people that uh, his motto in life is, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission, okay? That, that he just, he, he'll act now, and whatever the consequences are, he'll deal with it later and so Peter goes straight into the tomb. The grave clothes are there. They're lying on the cold stone, but there's no body there. The body of Jesus is missing. Look at verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. Come on. I can imagine years later, Peter saying to John, John, remember that biography you wrote of Jesus? Can I have a wee read at it? I've never actually got reading it. And John's like, uh, I mean, remember, Peter's the guy who cuts off ears. John's like, I don't seem to have a copy around anywhere at the minute. You know, I just, I just, he can't help himself. Who reached the tomb first, me, also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So Peter and John, they both go into the tomb. It's empty, but the grave clothes are there, which, if you were to steal a body, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. If you were going to steal a body, you would take the clothes with it. And they look and they find the tomb empty and they get out and they look at each other and and they go home. And we don't know why they go home, but they go home. Maybe they're afraid of the Roman authorities showing up. Maybe they're afraid of the Jewish rulers showing up. We don't know, but they go home. But somebody stays behind, Mary Magdalene. She stays behind and she stands outside the empty tomb weeping. She's inconsolable. Her heart is broken. The pain is unlike anything she has ever experienced before. And she doesn't know what she's going to do. Author Max Lucado, some of you may have read his books. In one of his books, he shares a story that was in one of his local newspapers in Texas. About Chippy Chippy the Parakeet. And the headline was this. Chippy the Parakeet... Never saw it coming. This is the article. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next he was sucked in, washed up and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. The phone rang and she turned around to pick it up. She had barely said hello when... Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, set down the phone, turned off the vacuum, and opened the bag. And there was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. Since the bird was covered in dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the tap and held Chippy under the running water. Then, that, realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the dryer and blasted the pet, the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. There's a lot of people like poor Chippy out there. There's a lot of people who have been through it. And they've been covered with the dust and suit of life. And they've had the life sucked out of them. And they've lost their soul. And they just stop and stare. They've lost their song and they just stop and stare because they don't know what else to do. And that's where Mary's at at this point. She's empty. She's emptier than the tomb. She's forlorn. She just doesn't know what to do or where to turn. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated there where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. I love that image. I immediately thought of, remember in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God was over the Ark, there were two angels stretched over the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. Where Jesus' head was and where Jesus' feet were, there's two angels because he is the Holy One. Anyway, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. She looks into the tomb, she sees two angels. Does she know they're angels? We don't know, there's no big deal. I actually just think Mary didn't know where she was at this stage. I think she was so, her tears were tripping her. her. She was so confused, she just couldn't think straight. And so that's why it just says there were two angels. It doesn't make a big fuss about the angels being there. Her head is all muddled. She's not thinking straight. And they ask her, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away. Someone has stolen him. Someone has removed the body. And I don't know where they've put him. Notice that even after his death, look at what she calls him, my Lord. Not Jesus. Not the rabbi. She calls him my Lord. Even in her lowest, darkest, and most desperate moment, Jesus is still my Lord. Even though things haven't worked out the way I thought they would, Jesus is still my Lord. Even though I am so in pain, even though my heart is broken, even though I have been shattered into a thousand pieces and I'm not sure how I'm going to get through this, Jesus is still my Lord. Even though I don't know how it came to this, Jesus is still my Lord. Look at verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. She turns around and there's someone there and she doesn't recognize him. Maybe because of her tears, like I say, she can't think straight. She's in shock, the trauma she's been through, the devastation. Maybe it's because Jesus now looks physically different. Remember on Friday, if you've ever watched The Passion of the Christ, he was beaten to a pulp. And so he's now in a resurrected body. Yes, there's continuity, there's similarities, but he's also different. It's the risen Jesus, it's the resurrected Jesus. But Mary doesn't know that yet. And it's funny because Jesus asked the same question as the angels Woman, why are you crying? Husbands, have you ever asked your wife, that woman, why are you crying? Don't do it. It's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. But there's different ways of asking that, isn't there? Like genuinely concerned, why are you crying? Or why are you crying? I think it's more like that. Why are you crying? Because they know something she doesn't know. They're in on a secret that she hasn't had revealed to her yet. Why are you crying? This isn't a time of sadness or grief or heartache or tears. Why are you crying? It says this, it says, she thinks it's the gardener. And I've read that so many times and I've just taken it as a throwaway line, but it stood out to me this week as I studied this passage because I can't help thinking that there's more to it than what we just read here. Where did things all go wrong back at the very start of the Bible? In a garden. God creates Adam and Eve. And he gives them authority over the garden. Look at what it says in Genesis 2. The Lord took them on and put them in the garden work it and take care of it. God creates humanity. He creates our first parents and the first thing he does is he makes us gardeners. He says, I want you to look after the garden. I want you to to have dominion and authority over the garden. And the way this perfect garden is, I want you to take what's in here and I want you to go out into the earth and I want you to make it like it is in here. I want you to replicate this. You're my gardeners. You're the people who have dominion over the earth. You're in charge. But they gave away that dominion. They gave away that authority when they sent. They handed the rulership of the garden and of the whole world over to the devil. And that's why there's so much chaos and, 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 and disasters and sickness and tears and, 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 and all of the pain that we have in the world is because that they gave away the rulership of the garden. They abdicated their responsibilities as the gardeners of creation. But now, now there's a new gardener in charge. What they had lost, the new gardener has recovered. What they had squandered, he has redeemed. Through what has just happened in the last 48 hours, the creator has got the garden back. Everything that was lost in a garden of Eden has now been restored in a garden with an empty tomb. And all things can be made new. Let's keep going. Verse 16, I love this verse. We're nearly done. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus just says one word, Mary. When people say your name, it can mean different things and you can have different emotions, can't you? When your parents said your name when you were a child, depending on the tone, it could mean different things. When I say Elijah, it means something. When I say Elijah, it means something different. When your teacher said your name, when your boss says your name, but when someone you love and when someone who loves you says your name, it's in a whole other category. And Jesus just says her name, Mary. And immediately, Even though she hadn't recognized him physically, immediately when he says her name, she knows it's him. She knows it's Jesus. And in that moment, everything changes forever. Earlier in John's gospel, remember Jesus had said this when he had been talking about being the good shepherd. He says he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. He calls his sheep by name and they follow him. Jesus knows your name. I know there's a crowd in here this morning. I know there's a crowd watching online. But I want to say to you, Jesus knows your name. You might feel hidden. You might feel overlooked. And maybe you have been by people. And maybe your name has been used in all sorts of ways. Maybe you've been gossiped about, rejected, lied about. But Jesus knows your name and he knows your heart. And he knows what you're going through. He knows what you've been through. Jesus knows your name. And look at what he says to her. Verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Instinctively, Mary grabs him. She reaches out and she the second he says her name and she realizes she just can't help, she's lost him once before and she's not going to lose him again and she grabs hold of him and she doesn't want to let him go. And again, I can't help thinking back to Eden, to that first garden. When Adam and Eve sinned and God came looking for them in the cool of the day and he said, where are you and what did they do? They went the other direction that they had. But now in this new garden, because of what Christ has done, we don't have to hide we can run towards Jesus and we can embrace Jesus because there's no barrier between us any longer. But Jesus hasn't finished yet. He says, look, don't hold on to me. I'm going to go back to the Father, but there's people need to know about this. There's, th- this isn't just about you and I. This isn't just about are we personal relationship. This is bigger than that. I need you to go and tell some people about this. And so Mary Magdalene, it says, went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. The first person to witness the most significant event in human history was a woman who had seven demons cast out of her because she went while it was still dark and she followed him to the end. And she says, I have seen the Lord. And I love that Jesus says, that I am going back to my Father and your Father. Before that, Jesus had only ever talked about the Father. But because of what he's done, he's saying he's my Father and he's your Father. The relationship I have with him, you can have with him. The intimacy I know with God the Father, you can have with God the Father because of the cross and because of the tomb. You can know God personally. So what does Easter matter in 2022? I want to tell you it matters a whole lot. Easter changes everything. Your sin has been paid for. The grave has been defeated. The curse has been broken. Death has been destroyed. Satan has been vanquished. Hell has been conquered. Evil has been overcome. Heaven has been opened. And Jesus has been resurrected and he rules and he reigns forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's what Easter means in 2020. 22. He died in my place. He died for me. He died as me and I don't have to die because Jesus has already taken my place. He has died the death that I should have died and he has risen to new life and because he rose to new life, I can have resurrection life. Look at what he said earlier on. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives in By believing in me, will never die. Do you believe this? And I want to say to you, do you believe this? When I do a funeral, especially when it's a Christian funeral, I want to remind them that this is not it. This is not the end. This is not something that Christians sort of, it's kind of a funny wee belief we have and you can take it or leave it. Paul says in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, this whole thing is a sham, it's a farce, and we may as well go home. This is the foundation, this is the bedrock of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ really died. He was buried in a tomb, and he rose from the grave, and he conquered death, and you and I then can conquer death, because we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Death does not have the final word. One day Yes, I will die. One day, yes, they will put me in a coffin. One day... people will hopefully come into a place and say nice words about me and one day they will lower me into a hole in the ground but I want to say to you Craig Cooney will not be in that coffin because Craig Cooney's spirit Craig Cooney's soul the part of me that is the essence of me will already be with the Lord in paradise and one day Jesus is coming back and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and I will have a new resurrected body and I will live with him forever in eternity with God on a throne in the center and all of us worshiping for what he has done. That's what Easter means. Come on. Look at what, rev- I'm finished now. Revelation tells us what that's going to be like. And then a loud voice from the throne said this, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. But right now we live in the in-between, don't we? We live in the in-between between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. And we live with suffering. And we live with pain. And we live with grief. And we live with heartache. And we live with loss. But I want to tell you that a day is coming when all of that goes. There is a day coming when the clouds will part and the resurrected King who is now at the right hand of the Father is coming back and there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth and you and I will have resurrected bodies and all things will be made new. And in this new place, there's no more sickness. In heaven, there's no more death. There's no disease. There's no depression. There's no anxiety. There's no cancer. There's no chemotherapy, there's no radiotherapy, there's no Parkinson's. In this new place, there's no Alzheimer's, there's no crutches, there's no wheelchairs, there's no divorce, there's no rejection, There's no prisons, there's no self-harm, there's no eating disorders, there's no addiction, there's no abuse, there's no suicide. In this new place, there's no viruses, there's no infections, there's no vaccines, there's no car accidents, there's no glasses, there's no hearing aids, there's no false teeth, there's no cellulite, amen, praise the Lord, say the women. And some of the men. There's no wrinkles. There's no fungal toenails. Praise the Lord. There's no diets. There's no Botox. There's no lip fillers. There's no pouts. There's no doctors. There's no taxes. There's no storms. There's no fears. There's no broken promises. There's no injustice. There's no broken homes. There's no hunger. There's no racism. There's no sectarianism. There's no war. There's no dictators. There's no bombs. There's no bullets. There's no corruption. There's no autism. There's no epilepsy. There's no poverty there's no betrayal, there's no gossip, there's no orphans, there's no debt, there's no shame, there's no funerals, there's no sorrow, and there's no tears. Why? Because Jesus Christ has rose from the grave, death has been defeated, and he makes all things new. And that applies to me, and that applies to you. But you put your faith in him. You put your faith in the finished work of Christ.